Week one, I gave an in-depth intro into the book of Galatians to help you understand the context. Probably every week it makes sense to just give a brief intro for those of you that weren't here before. Um, and for those of you that maybe are just still trying to understand the situation again. Written by the Apostle Paul, one of his, the first letters, probably the first letter that he wrote. It's an angry and emotional letter because um, a number of churches that he has started in an area called Galatia, modern day Turkey, have been, um, in his absence, as he has moved on, um, in his absence, some people have come in, other Christian converts, Jewish Christian converts, have come into these churches in Galatia that seem to have been made up predominantly of Gentiles, non-Jews, and have begun to teach that it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. If you really want to be saved, if you really want to, want to be part of God's people, if you really want to belong, you need to become a Jew also. You need to be circumcised. You need to live under the law of Moses. It's not okay simply to believe in Jesus. Um, now, there was a, there's obviously a nuance here. These weren't people that were saying Jesus isn't the saviour. They were saying Jesus is the saviour. They weren't saying Jesus isn't the Messiah, the Christ. They were saying he is and we need Jesus to be saved. But what they were saying is Jesus isn't enough. If you really want to go the whole way, you really want to become fully assured in your uh, standing as part of God's family, you also need to convert to Judaism because the Jews are the people of God. And it seems like the church had really been taken in by this and some of them had started to um, go through the rite of circumcision and um, live by the law of Moses. Um, It's an incredibly difficult situation. Paul gets wind of it and writes to them this letter that we have called Galatians. And it's it's like I said, it's an emotional, strong, in some places pretty scathing letter. We'll get to that as we get on over the next few weeks. But it's important that we engage with it properly so that we don't read the Bible through sanitised lenses. so we don't just kind of view it as some kind of cold, clinical, maybe dusty, religious book. This is uh, passionate, it is raw, it is controversial, it, it, it is deep soul level stuff. And what we need to realise is that God wants to work in our lives at soul, heart level. He does not want to produce a bunch of cold religious clinical people. It's the last thing he wants. He wants people that take him seriously and through that discover life to the full. Which isn't just effervescent, overflowing life. There's a depth to it. It reaches the whole part of who we are. So the issue for them was the Jew-Gentile thing. Was the work of Christ sufficient to bring them to God and to bring them together? For us, it's not that. We don't face the Jew-Gentile controversy. But I think there are subtle undercurrents where we find ourselves asking, is Jesus enough? Whether it's kind of vertical. Is Jesus really enough to make me right with God? Can can what Jesus did on the cross really forgive my sins completely so I can be right with God and have eternal life? Can I really know that? Is that act on that cross 2,000 years ago really sufficient for my life, my experiences, my conscience, the things I've been through, the things I live with in my head? Is that enough? And then we can ask it horizontally. Is Jesus' work really enough to join my heart with that person? That other person who loves Jesus. That person of a very different age. Or different class. Or different colour. Or different life experience. Because what the gospel, the gospel doesn't just work vertically, it works horizontally. It works in our relationships with one another. 
And we've got to face this stuff, particularly if we want the Lord Jesus to build a church here that is kingdom culture. Not a black church, a white church, or this church, or that church, but a kingdom church. A church whereby we all get to be really who we really are, but in Christ. And as a result of that, something happens that is completely supernatural. We've got to look at this stuff and uh, wrestle with it together. Now, we're going to read the whole of chapter 2 today. I want to give you the brief outline before we get into the text so you understand what's going on roughly, then we'll unpack it. What's happening is here, the first half of chapter 2, we've got Paul with Titus in Jerusalem and a meeting that went on there. Second half of chapter 2, we've got Peter in Antioch with Paul, Barnabas and others and a meeting that happened there. I'll I'll explain to you the significance of those meetings as we unpack it. But we've got basically two meetings. One in Jerusalem to try and sort out some stuff. One in Antioch where something very controversial happened. And then we've got verse 9 and 10 which is really, if you like, the hinge. It it really helps us understand um, the heart of where this whole thing is going and the spiritual message in it. So let's read the whole chapter together. You'll probably get freaked out from about halfway through verse 14 onwards to the end because it gets really dense doctrinally. Really dense. We're going to spend the whole of next week on verse 14 onwards, okay? So we're going to read the whole chapter today, but I'm going to unpack until halfway through verse 14. So don't worry if you find yourself at the end thinking, oh, I thought I understood it, but... Don't worry, that's next week we'll face that. Okay, let's read Galatians chapter 2 together. If you don't have a Bible with you, the the, uh, scripture's coming up there so you can see what we're reading. Paul's just described at the end of chapter 1 his conversion and that uh, after his conversion he didn't, he didn't really see much of the people in Jerusalem, the believers there. He was there for 14 days on a short trip. Um, that the churches in that area didn't really know him but they'd heard that this man who used to hate Christians was now a believer and was now a preacher and they were glorifying God because of him. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, I pray you'd help me in my preaching not to nullify your grace today. Help us in our hearing not to nullify your grace today. Help us to be a grace-infused people that we would really get it. That we would really get it. That fear and strange ideas about you would be chased out of our minds and hearts by your perfect love. And they would really get and understand this incredible gospel today. Give us fresh eyes to see it, Lord, I pray. I pray, Holy Spirit, for your work. Thank you, you do, you do revealing your work. You reveal spiritual truth to us supernaturally so that where we didn't get it before, now we get it. I pray you'd help us get it. I pray, Lord, lift the veil. Lift the veil. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, now, let me just explain to you the significance of these two meetings. You've got Paul in Jerusalem... weird or was that just me? (laughs) Paul was the first apostle to be called to reach the Gentiles. When he was called by Jesus there was this very controversial calling on him to go to the nations not just the Jews. So we have Paul the apostle to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is the centre of Jewish Christianity. So it's a little bit of a potential Daniel in the lion's den. You've got this man who's been preaching the gospel to Gentiles. They've been getting saved. They've not been getting circumcised. They've not been converted to Judaism. They've not been told to live by the law. Suddenly now he finds himself in Jerusalem, the centre of Jewish Christianity. The second meeting, we've got Peter, the apostle to the Jews, in Antioch. Now Antioch was a very interesting place. In Acts chapter 11, you find out how that church got started. There were some unnamed Christians, their names aren't given, they were uh, scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution, they got to Antioch, and some of them decided they're going to preach the gospel to Gentiles. What the heck? They did, and God started saving loads of people. And an amazing church was born. It was unlike any other church at that point in the the whole world. Uh, The congregation were uh, multicultural. The leadership team is multicultural. 
Also, there's different classes, it seems. In the leadership team, the names are a giveaway. It's a very unusual place. It becomes the centre for international Gentile Christianity. So we've got the apostles of the Gentiles in the centre of Jewish Christianity, meeting number one. Meeting number two, we've got the apostle to the Jews in the centre of Gentile Christianity and Sparks Fly, which we're going to look at in just a moment. I want to show you six parallels and contrasts between these two meetings to help you understand the gospel. I've been staggered when looking at the patterns here. You think, this is a very emotional letter, and you could be mistaken for thinking maybe it was impulsive, but the structure is just incredible. We'll see that as we unpack it. And both of these settings, Jerusalem and Antioch, we've got false brothers. Now that doesn't, I've been, you know, read in the commentary, it doesn't necessarily mean people that are saying they're Christians but they're not really. But it means that they're holding to a gospel that is not fully right. So they may well before God be saved, but what they're spreading is, it's not true. So they are either just false brothers, they, they're pretending to be Christians and they're not, or they think they are, and who knows, maybe they have seen enough of Jesus to be saved, but what they're teaching is really unhelpful. It's not good news, it's bad news, right? So um, in both settings we see them. We see them in Jerusalem, and we see them in Antioch. Point being, there are always people that are going to try and rob your freedom in Christ. There's always going to be people that are going to come in and complicate things and add to what Jesus has done so that your once simple, joyful, fervent, pure faith becomes a drudgery. Becomes incredibly complicated, becomes a heavy yoke on your shoulders where no longer is the joy of the Lord your strength, but you just find you're doing it because you've been doing it as long as you can remember. It's very subtle, it creeps in, but you've always got to be on the lookout without becoming paranoid for those who are going to want to take your joy in Jesus and make it something a bit more, add to it. People that come in and their tone is like, yeah, that's great, Um, yeah, maybe have you thought about? Kind of insinuating that it's somewhat incomplete. All this talk of Jesus is great, wonderful, I praise Jesus too, but have you thought about? And bringing in something which threatens the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see them there in both settings, number one. Number two, in Jerusalem, they're not yielded to. Notice the strength of the language. Because of false brothers secretly brought in. Sorry, where are we? Um, Verse five, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Listen to that. We did not yield in submission even for a moment. No. No. What we have in Jesus is way too precious. Paul describes it as they came in to spy out our freedom. It's like the freedom police. Oh, you're a bit too free there. Not sure, not sure about that. I tell you what, Paul says, I, we did not yield for a moment. What is Christian freedom? Because it certainly isn't that we just kind of go around doing what we please and living amoral lives. The truly Christian life should be exemplary in morality. So how does it work? What what is Christian freedom? Christian freedom is this. Christian freedom is that my relationship with God and with others is not, not fundamentally about a set of rules out here. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts out here. Either on manuscripts, scrolls, stones, books. It's not about that. The Bible teaches that When I became a Christian, there was a new heart given me, and on it was inscribed the things God loves. So that from the inside, there's now this desire to please God. 
So I'm no longer, I'm no longer sexually promiscuous, but faithful to my wife. Why? Well, because I'm not allowed. That's the wrong language. That's the wrong language. It's because God has changed me. And now I love faithfulness. Yeah? So I'll fight. I'll fight with all that I've got against remaining sin in me that tries to take me towards unfaithfulness. It's an internal thing. No longer steal. I used to steal. No longer steal. Now I give. Not just I've just stopped, I've stopped stealing now, so I want to be good. No, now I'll give. What, what's happened? There's an internal change. The grace of God it makes you what you want. It's inexplicable. It's not just that you try and be good now. Try and get some things in place. Try and become respectable. Try and try, you know, smart on my act up a bit. Clean things up. No. The grace of God has done something inside me. I'm not who I was. So Christian freedom is, is that I'm not under this, my life is not dictated by a load of rules, it's dictated by, by my relationship with God. Now does God say don't do certain things? Yeah, absolutely he does. But that's not, that's not how the relationship fundamentally works. It's like, when, when my kids come in from school, the first, or when I come in from work and they're indoors from school, the first thing, I, when they open the door, I don't say, have you done your homework? I don't say, have you made your bed? That's not how the conversation starts. Now we might get there. We do get there. But it's not how it starts. What does it start? It starts with cuddles, tiggles, beating up Levi. It starts with the good stuff. That's what it starts with. It starts with, how'd your day go? It starts with catching up. Why? It's relationship. Yeah? And now in the midst of that, the guys know that there are certain rules. But you know what? All of those rules, they come under one rule that we call it in the home. Do you know what it is? It's the rule of love. That's what we live by. So, burps at the dinner table. We've decided as a family, no. Why? Because it's wrong before God? No. It's not wrong before God. Why? Because it makes certain other members of the family feel sick. (laughs) Alright? So there's a rule, no burping at the dinner table. Why? Because it's wrong? It's not wrong? Why? It's the rule of love. Yeah? Love your sister. Without giving too much away. Do you understand? Yeah? That's how it works. It's a relationship built on love, and as a result, there's things we do and don't do. Why? Because we love each other. It's Christian freedom. I know the love of God in my life. He loves me. He loves me. He, uh, he loves you. It's incredible, isn't it? Delights in us as his children. As a result, there's things I do and I don't do now. Why? Fundamentally, why? Because I, I love him. It's Christian freedom. They've got the giggles. Is it the burps, Dave? What is it? I'm trying to work out with tiggling. Tiggling? That's tickle. <laughs> if you want to start talking about pronunciation, mate, we're going to get into a whole conversation. But I'm going to extend grace to you, brother. Brother with a V. I'm going to extend grace to you. Right, okay, so... It's tiggling in our house. Back on track. <laughs> the point is this. Christian freedom, you've got to guard and fight for. You've got to guard and fight for it. You know when you're moving away from it because your joy goes, your peace goes, it starts, you've got to fight for it. Christian freedom. Don't yield for a moment. In Antioch, they were yielded to. 
They came in from Jerusalem. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles did not eat. They were fellowshipping, eating together. We are one in Christ. Hallelujah. These people are coming in from Jerusalem. Peter, out of fear, withdraws. What will they think? What will they say? He withdraws out of fear. It's the opposite. So we've got this incredible contrast in these two meetings. Freedom versus fear. What do you live by? What do you live by? Freedom or fear. What will they think? Thirdly, when the false brothers weren't yielded to, it led to harmony. They weren't yielded to, I'm imagining it was tense for a moment. We're not going to yield to you. But it led to harmony. Peter, James and John gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Hey, we're in this together. That's where it goes to harmony in Christ. When in Antioch they were yielded to, it led to massive division and trouble. Suddenly, can you imagine these Gentile Christians? Suddenly these, not just just Jewish Christians, but Peter. He's like the top guy. Where's he gone? He won't eat with us anymore. Huge. Terrible. Led to division. It leads to division. Though initially, I'm sure it was easier. Just give, just give way. Just give way. It leads to division. Fourthly, in Jerusalem, Titus was affirmed. He didn't have to be circumcised, which I'm sure he was very grateful about. Titus comes along with Paul. There's this conversation. These false brothers come in. They're resisted. No, you don't have to convert to Judaism. Jesus is enough. Say, Jesus is enough. Jesus. Right, that's the whole that's the name of the series. That's, what we, that's where this thing is going. Jesus is enough. As a result, of course you haven't got to be circumcised. You're a Gentile. Okay, great. In Antioch, we are told that because of what Peter did, Barnabas was led astray. So when the leaders act in line with the gospel, it's relief for the followers. When the leaders act out of fear and begin to give way on freedom, others get led astray into it. You can end up with whole congregations and whole churches under the grip of legalism, of trying to add more to Jesus. People get led astray. Shepherds and sheep. It's frightening. Fifthly, Paul said, they added nothing to me. I brought my gospel to them. Paul, Paul went there and he met secretly with Peter, James and, and John. And he's like, look, this is what I've been preaching. I've been preaching the sufficiency of Christ to the Gentiles. Are you cool with this? And they're like, yeah, 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 Jesus is enough. And he's like, okay. They didn't add anything to his message. After what Peter did in Antioch, Paul added plenty to Peter <laughs> in his own style. Next week's sermon is what he's adding to Peter, his conversation where he just publicly rebukes him. And then sixthly, there's a key phrase, and you'll find it in verse 5 and verse 14. This is the big deal. Verse 5. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, here it is, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There it is, truth of the gospel. Verse 14, in Antioch now. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. There it is. What is the truth of the gospel? Here's the truth of the gospel. Any and every person from whatever race, class, background can be rescued from the evil inside 
and the evil around them and fully brought home to God, adopted into his family and become a full member of his household, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit simply through turning wholeheartedly to Jesus in trust and surrendering all to him because he has given himself for our sins in order to rescue us. Hallelujah. That's the truth of the gospel. Anyone... Any one of you here, regardless of how dark or twisted or mixed up or confused or confusing your background is, or even you yourself are to yourself, can be delivered from evil and darkness by Jesus. Why? Because he gave himself for your sins on the cross and it was enough. It's just wonderful news. Very, very simple, very, very powerful. As soon as we move away from the truth of the gospel out of deception, or fear, or religious people. Then we find that division and deception ensue. But when we grasp, when we really grasp the freedom of the the truth of the gospel and stand on it, then love, unity, and truth abide with us. The key to the future of this church is that we stand in the truth of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that the gospel shapes all that we are and all that we do. That we hold up everything we do under the scrutiny of the gospel. Does it fit? Is it leading to life? Is it, does it honour Jesus? Is, it, is this shouting out, Jesus is enough? Does the way I relate to you shout out, Jesus is enough? Or are we, is there a cliquey thing? Is there something going on? Certain types, hanging out with certain types, all kind of holding up in other little areas of familiarity, rather than saying, no, I'm going to push through and find fellowship in Christ with you. You may be 20 years older, you may be 20 years younger. I may work in the city, and you may be a street sweeper, but in Christ, I'm going to find fellowship with you. You might have spent most of your life in South America. I've spent most of mine in Scandinavia. But in Christ, we are one. And I want to work that out with you. And we're going to have a laugh and get over language barriers and different food likes and dislikes. And we're going to find one another in Christ. It's what the gospel does. It's what the gospel does. Which is why I'm so thrilled. I feel gradually God is answering our prayers. We are becoming more and more diverse. It is happening. And it's wonderful. I want to just honour every, honour any, any one of you that feels that you're in some way a minority in this church. Thank you. Thank you for still being here. Thank you for still coming. Thank you for still persevering. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because every time you just stick around and decide to engage and bring all that you are to the church here, we become more and more like the kingdom of God. Thank you so much. Thank you to those of you that are in the majority here, whatever that is. That you don't just hole up in your own little bubbles, but that you're looking to explore and develop genuine friendships of all kinds of different people. We've got to get this. This is gospel stuff. It's not just some sociological thing. This is gospel, gospel stuff. I want to end on the pivot, verses 9 and 10. This is wonderful. This this sums the whole thing up. We're in Jerusalem at this point still, and Paul says, When James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was was eager to do. I want to show you three things to end. They saw grace on Paul. These men, Peter, James and John, they had followed Jesus 
in his earthly ministry those three years. They'd been with Jesus. We're told that at the Last Supper, John lent. He's, uh, he reclined onto, onto Jesus' chest. He, there was an, they knew him, intimate, close, incredible, physical. This Paul had never met Jesus, we don't think, until Jesus was resurrected and appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He came, he was a late comer. But they saw on him, there is a grace on you that's the same on us. And that grace led to two things. Firstly, we're in it together. I see grace on you, here's the right hand of fellowship. Why? Because there's grace on you. I can see Jesus' grace on your life. Right hand of fellowship. We are in this thing together. Grace leads to unity. I'm not primarily interested in your culture, your class, your background. My background is so mixed up anyway that I could never have a hope of, of, of judging anyone in that, in that regard. Literally, I, I, I span both classes through... I've got a few different parents and step-parents and it's, the whole thing is so crazy sociologically that I don't think I ever could anyway. But I just don't think of people in that way. I'm looking to see the grace of God on your life. Just... And I hope that that's what you're looking for in me too. That we're just looking for the work of Jesus in one another's lives and celebrating that and celebrating what he's done, yeah? We say, hey, look, I, I see Jesus in you. Come on, we're in this together. You're my brother, you're my sister. That's what grace does. You can't argue with grace. Peter, James and John could have been all funny and said, yeah, but look at you, you're late coming, you ain't been on the scene long, you're, you're a bit odd. He was odd. Peter, Paul was an unusual guy. But they said, we see grace on you. You're good enough for God? good enough for us we're in, let's do this but secondly they recognised there was a different kind of it was the same grace but actually there's grace on us to reach the Jews, there's grace on you to reach the Gentiles, do you see that? they recognised there was a diversity of grace as well, that's how grace works, grace is very diverse, so it's all the same grace from Jesus in the gospel unmerited favour poured out on us oh wow just poured out on us in Christ there it is but it leads to different things someone gets saved and their heart just begins to burn with a particular country on the planet they can't even explain why what is it? there's a grace on them for people from that nation or to go to that nation it's grace others God just comes on them in grace and they're just their heart starts to beat Whenever they hear about orphans and children that don't have parents, something happens in there. There's a grace on them to serve the Lord in that area. There's specific grace on all of us. There's different gifts, the Bible says, but the same spirit. Some of us just love prophesying. We hear God and we have messages for one another. It's prophecy. Others of us, there's just an ability. It's a miraculous thing. Just We pray crazy prayers and they get answered. Others of us, it's just a healing gift. It's like, you know, you know who you want to go to when you're ill. That one. Why? There's a healing gift there. It's the diverse grace of God. And that's the other thing about grace. A church that's based on grace should be pumping with diversity. The last thing it should produce is clones. People should not talk the same, dress the same, speak the same, serve the same, express themselves in the same way. There should be a wonderful, inexplicable diversity. That's what grace does. So you know you're a grace church. People can come there and be authentic and be themselves and can say, you know what? Flipping heck, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15.10, not the flipping heck bit, but the other bit. (laughs) By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by the grace of God, I'm not going to spend my life trying to be like you, and I certainly don't expect you to spend your life trying to be like me. Yeah? Why? Because I want to honour the grace of God. And the way he's honoured you, the way he's clothed you with his grace, I'm going to honour that because that's worshipful. 
And then the final thing. Oh, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. And we'll end with this. At the heart of truly apostolic, grace-filled Christianity is we remember the poor. Who are the poor? Well, probably at some point in our lives, all of us. At some point in our lives, circumstances will conspire and we will find ourselves under it. We will find ourselves in need of help. Financially, physically, could be due to illness and for whatever reason, the healing doesn't come. Relationally, suddenly the marriage that was looking so strong, it's like, oh man, it's just suddenly looking really rocky. anymore is it? Oh it is now. In whatever area it is there will be seasons where you're poor. For us it was when Davina got cancer we just suddenly needed a whole lot of help and a whole lot of grace and we didn't have a whole lot to give and you lot expressed the gospel by loving us through that season so it's recognising first of all done whatever you do start thinking the poor are over there somewhere. No there are seasons where it's going to be you. And if you really get the gospel, you'll understand, actually, when it, comes, when it comes down to it, there's a sense in which we all are incredibly poor without Jesus anyway. So at the heart of who we are and what we do, we must love, give special love, attention and care to those who are vulnerable, who are going through it, who are weaker in that moment. It's vital that we do. Firstly, to those among us, why? Well, because if you're going to go outside and help, you've got to have your house in order. You've got to have your house in order. The Bible says, do good to all, especially the household of the faith. So we love one another. We keep our eyes out for one another. Special grace to those of you that are under pressure, that are, that are just in a tough season. What you mustn't do is hide. Now, there's people that say, oh, I didn't come last Sunday because I was having a bad time. So what? I wasn't around last week because I was having a toughie. So well, I wouldn't have been, been able to do the smile thing. So I didn't come. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are we building? It's a community of grace. It's a, gospel, it's a gospel-based community. We remember the poor. And then by God's grace, as we're at least, you know, trying to make sure we're on top of it as best we can, as a church, we look out, we take this love and mercy outwards. We take it outwards. And by God's grace, he's helping us. Lots of, I know lots of us just love people. You know, it's not a project, no one knows about it. You just love those who need it, especially. But then there's church stuff, like cap and food banks, massive. I mean, you know, I've only served on food bank a couple of times, but I was there yesterday, and just hearing some of the stories, you think, oh, oh. All your stereotypes just get smashed. And you're like, oh, this could be me. This really could few changes of events and circumstances and I could be sitting here filling up my shopping trolley with food that someone's just given me. I mean it was an incredible, incredible time. We had one guy there who couldn't even look at anyone in the eyes because he's a staunch atheist and to be in a church building getting charity was killing him. Another guy there, Muslim, all the gear, big beard, hat, cloak, just down there. It's great. Someone got him a cup of water and then he offered me it. You just think hospitality of some of these cultures is unbelievable. I haven't got anything but someone just gave me this so I'll give it to you. Beautiful. Amazing. African women that was fasting, because African women are quite good at fasting in general. Going for it. At the food bank. Brilliant. She said, just pray for me. I was like, okay. 
I'll pray for you. Stood together with them, prayed with her. Another woman who just average Kentish towner. You know, you just really, you, I mean, together, really together. There with a trolley. You think, oh God, what is this? Tell you what, now's the time for the church. Now is the time for the church. It's a tough season and, you know, we're all feeling the pressure this way and that. I understand that. But I tell you, if, if, if the revels are time for the church to rise up and really show the grace of God to the community around it, now's the time. And God has positioned us with these amazing things in place, CAP and Food Bank and the gospel communities that are, that are just based on mercy and love. This is an incredible, incredible thing. There's just one thing. You can imagine Peter, James and John saying, OK, Ryan, I've OK, see you, see you. Oh, there's just one thing. And Paul's like, the poor? They're like, yeah, got it. Yes, that's the conversation. Yeah, why? Well, I'll tell you what, we'll end with this scripture. This is why. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There it is. It's the gospel. God loved the poor, you and me. So he gave it all up for us and made us rich. Now out of the richness we have in Christ, let's give ourselves to the poor. Amen? Amen. 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 Why don't we just be still before God for a moment? And, uh, you know, it may be that, um, wow, you know, some of you, you just heard this today. You've heard the wonderful truth in the songs and you're like, do you know what? I want to live in this grace. Either you haven't been living in the grace, maybe you've been a Christian on paper, or even a Christian, a bit like these false brothers, you know, you're kind of a Christian, but the gospel you've been preaching and living, it's just not been pure Jesus, it's been just stuff added. And you just think, oh, do you know what, I want to leave that behind today. Or maybe you came in here as a fully-fledged person who wouldn't say you're a Christian, and you're like, but I want this grace, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I'm going to pray. If you want to, if you want to live this Jesus life, then you just you pray this prayer after me to the Lord. And I tell you, if you mean it in your heart, he'll hear you. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued. He'll rescue you. Bring his grace to you. So you pray that after me. Lord Jesus, I've heard about your grace today. And I've heard that you love me. And I've heard that you gave yourself for my sins. And now, Lord, I want to turn away from all the nonsense. The pride. The lust. The darkness. And I want to give myself, Jesus, to you wholeheartedly. I receive you as my Lord. I receive you as my King. Jesus, I want to follow you. Please forgive me and come and live inside of me by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.